And as we plunge today into the conversation we're going to have and the uh, final exercise we'll do at the close of our service, uh, I just you're going to hope that you'll, you'll rest in the reality that you are, you are seen and you are really loved. Uh, I don't know if you have ever been through a moment in your life when you felt like you were passing through the deep. We've entitled the message for today that, Through the Deep. Uh, maybe you found yourself in a place in life where you were just simply in the deep stuff. You were overwhelmed by what was going on in your life. You didn't know how to get out. You found yourself stuck or sunk in some ways. Maybe you made what felt like an innocent choice, but it had all kinds of unintended consequences for you. Uh, or maybe you made a mistake or a series of those mistakes, and now it just all seems to be crashing in on you. Or, 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 or perhaps you're in a situation where you actually did nothing wrong that you're aware of, but there, there are people, maybe enemies or, or illnesses that are out to get you, and you're scared, and, and, and you feel stuck because it just looks like there's no way out. Maybe you're in a place like that, maybe you're not, maybe you know somebody who is. Or will find yourself in that kind of location before you know it. What do you tell yourself in those times? What's the messaging that you try and cycle through to enable you to keep functioning when, you're, when you see no way? Uh, or, or how do you minister to, care for the friends and the family members and the other the workmates, the key people in your life, when they're in a place like that? And, and does... God's word in the Bible offer any help with this? Well, I'm here to say yes. The answer is yes. The word of God offers us tremendous help with those no way out, walking through the deep moments of our lives. And we find today in the story of the people of Exodus some incredibly good guidance and instruction. Uh, if you were not here last week, or maybe even for several weeks, we've been studying our way through the Old Testament book of the Exodus in a series we're calling Wild. And the story has been wild. I wish we had time to go back and trace all that had happened. But I will say that last week, uh, we concluded in Exodus chapter 13. And in this particular story, it looked like the fortunes of the children of Israel, the, this massive group of about a million Jewish people, that have been locked up for like more than 400 years under an oppressive yoke of slavery in Egypt, their fortunes are finally turning for the good. Because God has brought about, about a cataclysmic event, a, a tragedy of sorts, a, an incredible sacrifice involving the blood of lambs and the death of firstborns. And this incredible of, event and moment we studied last week has finally changed the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him relent from his ruthless determination to keep the, the Israelite people under his thumb, under his heel. We ended last week in Exodus chapter 13 with the Israelites marching their way out of Egypt, heading east out of Egypt towards, we hope, was the sunrise of a promising new era in their life. Keep in mind, they have been enslaved, again, I said it, 400 years, the same length of time that the Atlantic slave trade went on, which is one of the reasons why the story of Exodus has been so important to the black church and to others who care about the cause of justice and 
human thriving over the years. So now they're, they're heading east out of Egypt. And we know where their ultimate destination is because God has told them about it. We saw it back in episode two of this series. They are heading towards a promised land. They're heading towards a land flowing with milk and honey, the place that we today call Israel. A reminder, I think, in light of today's news, that, that, that no place we go in life, no matter how promised and good it is, can, can be free of dangers and challenges where we will need to cry out to God for help. So, so this is where the story becomes wild again. It's at this point as they're making this journey. And, and, I, and I hope you'll stay with me here because I'm going to give you a little bit of a geography lesson. Without understanding the geography, this story will not, will not make anywhere near as much sense. The slum where the Israelites have been living, a million of them, have been living in a place called Goshen. It's, it's, a, it's a community in, in the Nile River Delta, prone to a lot of flooding, which is why it was something of a slum and the poor people lived there. Um, they've been living in this particular place and, and you can see that location in the upper left corner of the map that you're looking at. And the place where God is going to eventually take them, the promised land, is in the upper right portion of that map, in the northeast of that map. In fact, you can see the word Jerusalem in the upper left if you look carefully. Now, now please get this. This is how the end of chapter 13 goes. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Red Sea. Now, I hope you're catching this. This is like, it's, it's like your mom or your dad. They come to you and they say, kids, we're going to take a road trip. We're going to take, we're going on a great trip. We're going to go from Chicago to New York. And, and when we get to New York, we're going to see the Statue of Liberty and we're going to go to all these great restaurants and you're going to see some of your other family that are there and we're going to have so much fun. I mean, you're going to love the amusement parks there. You're going to have a blast when we get to New York. And the kids all go, yay! And they run out to the family van. They can't even wait to have the trip started. And so you get in. Uh, Mom and dad gets into the van behind the kids. You're one of those kids. And, and, and dad sits down behind the wheel. And he promptly drives you to New Orleans. <laughs> this is exactly or this is pretty close to what happens here in this story. And then the story gets even wilder. Even wilder, because when the Israelites get way down south and they round the tip of what is known as the Suez Peninsula and they start heading north again, back sort of in the general direction of where they're going to ultimately wind up, they, they, they get at about day 15 of the journey. And keep in mind, they're doing this on foot. And they're dragging whole families and, and whatever possessions they can carry through hot, hot sun and, and rugged, rugged ground. And two weeks in, they get to a place called Etham, which they find is literally a dead end. It's a box canyon. Um, and, and there's a mountainous wilderness now to the north of them. And there's a mountainous wilderness to the west, which is the brown, a darker brown color on that map. And there is only water to the east of them. And to the south, there is their, their worst nightmare. 
starting to assemble. So guess what God says? Turn south. Turn south. Chapter 14 opens up these words, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. Wait a second. Didn't you send us on this journey? Now God says, turn back and encamp near Pi Hiaroth between Migdal, which means the tower, and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon, which is an island across the water. Now you tell me, you're in the van on this trip. Is there, is there any kid with any kind of normal human sensibility who's not saying at this point, uh, uh, Dad, do you think maybe you should let mom drive? Do you, do you think maybe we need to stop and ask for some directions here? I mean, we seem pretty confused. We're, not, we're nowhere near where we're supposed to be going. Well, this is exactly what the people of Israel have to be feeling in this particular moment. And, and this is where we start to find out in the story that God is not stupid. God is not lost. God is actually operating by a higher form of GPS than, than we could understand up to this moment. He is not dragging the Israelites down south in order to show them the world's largest ball of twine or the Lint Museum or something, right? It, 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 he's got a purpose. In fact, God has planned this whole diversion to teach two lessons. And the first lesson is a lesson for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and the Egyptians. As my friend Eric Camfield might say, God has cast his fly line way down south, way downstream, just waiting for the big fish to drift down and then he'll set his hook. He'll set his hook. And God says this in the next verse, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he says, and he'll pursue them. Wow. Really. This is, this is another one of those wild moments in the story. Two things. He wants the Egyptians to pursue him? Really? He's just been trying to get them out of Egypt, away from the Egyptians. He wants the Egyptians to go after them. And then the second thing in this little part of the story is he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Have you ever heard that phrase before or seen that, read that anywhere else in the Bible? Maybe those of you who have done Bible studies, you see these stories where, where God says he's hardening so-and-so's heart. When I first read those phrases as I met them in my study of the scriptures, it was really confusing to me. Uh, because I thought to myself, you know, I, 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 does God want people to fail? I mean, does God want certain people, you know, to, to not recognize him, not respond to him? I mean, is he out to destroy certain people? Does he make people fail? And what's confusing to me about that is because I know the story of Jesus. And if there's anything that the story of Jesus tells me, is that God is out to make people succeed. He's out to help make people thrive. 
He's out to soften people's hearts, not harden people's hearts. He is the God, Jesus shows us, who goes seven, more than seven times beyond what's required just to reach people, to reach hard-hearted people. Even in the Old Testament, God says through his prophets that his objective, his, his ultimate objective is to replace people's heart of stone, the hard heart, and give them a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a heart that's responsive to him, a heart that beats like his heart beats for other people. So how do we reconcile these two ideas? How do we put these things together? Well, some scholars have suggested that these statements we read about God hardening somebody's heart are simply the Bible's way of asserting that God is sovereign over everything that happens. That God knew Pharaoh's heart would get hard. And this is just the Bible's way of saying, God, God got that in advance. Um, I think God is sovereign over everything. But I think it's important for us to know something that I think Pastor Gregory Boyd does a great job of explaining in his book, Is God to Blame? And Boyd points out that the root of the Hebrew word that gets translated to harden uh, the root word actually means to strengthen. It means to take something that's there and, and, and increase it or lift it up. Uh, and, and Boyd points out that God hardens people by strengthening the resolve that they have formed in their own heart. And we'll say why in just a moment. He, he just strengthens the resolve they've already formed in their own heart. Uh, Six times in the story of Exodus, uh, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it also notes, before we ever hear about that, that seven times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That, uh, that he was growing more and more stubbornly arrayed against the Israelites and against God's purposes. And, and, and so in every instance where Scripture speaks of God hardening somebody's heart, it, it, it is, says Boyd, an act of judgment. It's an act of consequences for something that the other person has already done progressively over time uh, in themselves. And so God just simply ensures that these, that these rebels, in this case Pharaoh, will do what their own evil hearts desire and not alter their course now for ulterior motives and prolong the agony that they're creating for other people. It is altogether unwarranted, writes Gregory Boyd, to suppose that God unilaterally hardens people's heart against himself. He doesn't do this. He's not out to, to close people off from him. Uh, he doesn't harden people's heart while pretending that everybody can find salvation. Uh, when God decides to harden somebody's heart, concludes Boyd, we can be assured that God wishes it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. He's just simply finally saying, okay, I've been saying to you, please, let my will be done. Now I'm saying to you, let your will be done, if that's your choice. So Exodus 14 goes on and says that when the king of Egypt was told that the people, the Israelites, had fled, had left Egypt, 
Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and we have lost their services. Go back to last week if you need to know what that means. We've lost their services now. This is an example of what I call reverse repentance. Uh, Instead of letting God's previous um, reproofs of Egypt through all the plagues we have studied in past weeks, instead of letting that move Pharaoh more and more towards a softened heart and a kindness towards God's people, Pharaoh goes exactly the opposite direction and he becomes harder than he ever was before and determined to just take out his anger on the Israelite people. And if you go on and read in chapter 15, which we don't have time for today, what's called the Song of Moses and Miriam, you'll see the heart of of, uh, Pharaoh characterized. You'll realize how ruthless he was, how much his attitude was, that people that aren't willing to serve me are going to pay for that. They're going to pay for that. So this is something of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Life is about destroying those who will not serve me. So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready, the text says, and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, the tanks of that day, along with all of the other chariots of Egypt. So 600 of the best chariots and then tons of other chariots. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites and he overtook them as they camped by the sea. Now just imagine you're camping by this sea and you're with your kids. And you've got like no other protections. You know, you don't have armor or anything like that. You're just, you're just a, 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 a former slave. And you suddenly hear the sound of these thundering chariots and the hooves of thousands of horses coming your way. What are you feeling? It's a desperate moment. So I said a moment ago that God leads the Israelites on this circuitous journey south to teach two lessons. The first lesson is aimed at Pharaoh and the Egyptians because, I think, their whole attitude at this moment is sort of an illustration of the biggest problem confronting humanity, even today. It's an illustration of what theologians call original sin that afflicts humanity in every generation, and it is the idea and listen to me carefully on this, it's this idea that subtly insinuates and grows within a person that I can and I deserve to be the center, to occupy the throne, to make the rules, to issue edicts for other people, to be honored and glorified wherever I go. In short, I deserve to take the place of God. And this is the big challenge in the world today is how many people want to hold that throne and be at that center and disregard the well-being of others. And the irony of this is that God himself, by all rights, should be the center and the master. But God, by his nature, is a servant. 
takes the form again and again of the servant and is out for others when he doesn't have to be. And Jesus is the supreme picture of this, not the only one in the Bible, but the supreme picture of that kind of heart who even when they're crucifying him says, Dad, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Gives his life for them when they have no way out themselves. So God is generous and God is is self-giving. And and when he runs into people who have power and use it in grasping selfish ways, he thinks, no, that's not the way. And your way is not going to prevail. Why? Why is he so confident that his way or that person's way is not going to prevail? It is simply because he is God. He is not a fantasy. He is not uh, a projection of our ideals. He is not uh, some kind of a, a personal belief system. God is the author and governor of the universe. And those who misuse his gifts in a continuous way and abuse other people in a, in a con- continuous way, who ignore his principles and practices by which he wants to see creation and his creatures function and flourish and keep doing this in spite of his attempts to reach them and soften their hearts, these people are going to finish badly. And it may not be till after this life that we know how badly those people who choose to go their way and pursue their will instead of his loving will ultimately fail. As I've already said, this is not what God wants. It's not the outcome God wants. As we've seen throughout the Exodus story, God gives Pharaoh and the Egyptians multiple opportunities to soften their hearts, take a different path. But as chapter 14 vividly describes... Pharaoh doesn't. He just hardens further. He goes back to advancing his selfish, other-defeating ways. And therefore, he and his regime get washed away. Don't get washed away. Here's a lesson in this for us for the Pharaoh in us. Don't get get washed away. Don't be the, the, the Pharaoh that so many voices in our culture today are encouraging each one of us to become. You should be at the center. You should have more people serving you. You deserve to be honored and glorified. Don't let those voices win out. Let the voice of Jesus win out. If I elevate you to a place of privilege and power in life, use it. Use it to bless others. Don't use it for selfish purposes. Don't be one of the ones that get washed away. That's the first lesson of Exodus 14. There's a second lesson here, and this one, I think, gets aimed at, um, not at Pharaoh and all that he represents, but specifically at God's people. And I began today by asking you this question. Have you ever been through the deep? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you face circumstances so dire that you thought there's no way? There's no way forward. There's no way out. I'm lost. Then let me ask you an even more important question. Have you ever considered the possibility 
And this is a really wild idea. But have you ever considered the possibility that God sometimes might personally lead you and purposely lead you to a place in the deep where there's no way out of his kindness for you, out of his long-term plan for you, out out of his desire to get you to a place where you finally say, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the resources. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the power. To fix this situation, I'm utterly dependent on you, God, and on your genius and on your capacity and not my own. Could you imagine God doing something to you and for you that wild? The climax of Exodus 14 is a moment like this. From a human standpoint, the Israelites are truly trapped. The way to the north and the west is blocked by a mountainous wilderness. They're not going through that. The way to the south is blocked by the thundering chariots of Egypt's army growing ever closer with each passing moment. And the way to the east is nothing but a surging sea. There's no way. And I'll just say parenthetically, by the way, that when you read in the Bible the sea, the sea is very often uh, a symbol for chaos biblically speaking. It's a symbol for that kind of roiling reality of life that's unpredictable and uncontrollable. And there's a lot about life that's wildly that, right? And and, and the sea is that reality out of which can sometimes come our complete destruction, as happens to the Egyptians here, or out of which can come a creative new beginning, as, as happens in Genesis, when God creates out of the chaos a world, or as happens when the disciples in the New Testament are so terrified in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus rises and says, be still to the sea, and it calms. And they realize he is the Lord, and they give their lives to him in deeper measure. Or as we read about in the book of Revelation, we're at the end of the whole story of history. There is no more sea. God does away with all the chaos. Everything is rightly ordered. It's a powerful image, this notion of the sea. But the common biblical idea is that God is Lord over the chaos of our lives. He's a Lord over even the chaos the things that frighten and freeze us in certain moments and that could form and free us if we opened our hearts to him. So here's an interesting question. What's the sea in your life right now? Where's the place of chaos? Where you fear frozen or or fearful? How could God maybe use this moment to form you anew and free you in a fresh way, could it be possible that God, this wild God, has brought you to that place for your good? It's always hard to take that point of view when you're stuck between the rock and the hard place. 
It's really difficult to do it. Exodus 14 says that as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Oh God, we have total trust in you. I know we're going to be okay. No, that's not what the text says. They said to Moses, was, and it's so sarcastic, you almost got to admire how bitingly sarcastic this is. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? You know, dad, is this why you took us on this trip? Because we couldn't be miserable enough at home, right? Um, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert, they say. And, and I'm kind of tempted to condemn the children here for being whiny and weak on the road trip, but I've been there and it is hard for any of us to trust in the purposes of God when we're in a situation where there seems no way. Isn't that your experience? It's hard. That's why they call it faith, I guess. Well, Exodus 14, 21 goes and says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left and the Egyptians pursued them, the text says, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Now you think, just, I mean, again, parenthesis, Pharaoh sees this incredible, unnatural, miraculous thing happening. He goes, whoa, better step back here. No, he goes ruthlessly after the Israelites to destroy them. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians behind you. And Moses stretched out his hand, and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place. Not one of the Egyptians survived, the Bible says. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. It's really easy to get this story wrong here. And and miss the huge lesson that we're most meant to take from it. Uh, the female Episcopalian priest Fleming Rutledge points out that this is the mistake that gets made in Hollywood's version of the story. How many of you have seen The Prince of Egypt? It's worth watching. It's a good movie. But at one point, when, when the seas are parted, and the Israelites begin to go through on dry ground, there's a song. And the song's refrain is, miracles can happen if you believe. How many times have you heard that idea? Maybe even heard it in church. 
that miracles can happen if you just believe hard enough. As if the power was in you. As if the reason that you've got cancer or your loved one is struggling is because you're not being faithful enough. As if the reason that the calamity is going on is because of some moral failure in you. As if you could compel your own salvation by just working harder, by just believing more. And Fleming Rutledge remarks that the message of the Exodus story is a wild one. Here's the message. The miracles of God happen whether you believe or not. If God intends to do it, it's whether you believe or not. Israel was not saved because of its faith, she writes. On the contrary, Israel failed to believe right up until the moment of deliverance. Their last words before the waters split were not, oh God, we trust in you. It were, it, the words were, take us back to Egypt. We were better there. And Moses isn't making the miracle happen. It's not because God has put some magic into his outstretched hand. He's only an instrument. He's only a pointer. He's only a reminder that we do need to stretch out our hand for God, whose hand is stretched to us. But the power is the Lord's. The sovereignty is God's. God is doing this, not because Israel has earned it, but because he is the God of deliverance. As once upon a time, he stretched out his hands upon a cross, not because the people around him had earned him dying in their place, or because their faith was so strong, but because he simply loved them and was the God of deliverance. And I hope that's something of a comfort to you and to me. God makes a way out of no way. And this wild idea didn't just imprint itself upon the children of Israel. It became the lens through which the followers of Jesus came to view all of the challenges and obstacles of their life too. The early church realized that if you really think about it, the whole story of Jesus is about the God who does things where there's no way. Where there's no way. The, the life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities. Think about this. On one side, a virgin's womb. A place that's marked no entry. On the other side, a, a vaulted tomb a place that's marked no exit, as Peter Larson reminds us. And yet, God makes a way where there looks like no way. We sing a lot of wonderful songs here in this place. We're gonna do so again as we close today. But one of my favorite ones is the praise song that goes like this. You turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You turn graves into garden. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas 
into highways. You're the only one who can. So let me close with this question. Who can make a way out of the no way that you or some loved one may be facing right now? Who can do that? God can. God can. So do what you can. But at the end of the day, put your trust, your hope, your blessed assurance in him and his heart alone. Please pray with me. Lord, we just thank you for this amazing story that is not an ancient story so much as it is the human story, our story. And we pray that you will take whatever you want us to really hold on to from this whole long conversation and just implant it deeply in us in a way that enables us to walk from here in the directions that you want us to go. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a regular here at Christ Church, you know that we end our services almost always the same way. Um, we'll sing a song, we'll make a couple of final announcements, the pastor will give a benediction, and we'll go on our way. We'll invite people sometimes to come for prayer to the prayer banner, but most people just head on out. We're going to try something a little different today, and I hope you'll bear with it. Um, what we're going to do is, at the very close of the service, we're going to sing a song, and the band's going to lead us, and we're going to have an opportunity to all come for prayer if we want to. don't have to. But, but we're going to open it up. We've got have stations around the, the room where if you feel moved to, you can come and ask for prayer. You might be at one of those Red Sea moments in your life where there seems no way. And you just are beseeching God to be the deliverer. And we want to make that easy for you to do if you feel moved to do it. What I'd like to ask you to do right now is to just be still. And we're going to listen to a song about that. And we're just going to quiet our hearts. Because so much of our life is about trying to do everything ourselves. Just be still and know that he is God. And after we've had a chance just to quiet our hearts in this way, I'm going to come forward and, and issue an invitation to you. And then you're free to respond as you will. Let's uh, receive what, the gift of the song we're about to hear and what God does in, in each of us.